Super Talk Mississippi media production. Come see your locally owned and operated Linton Glass for all your glass needs. No matter what glass you need to replace, you can count on Linton Glass. Call us today at 601-835-4336 or find us on the web at lintonglass.com. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbard along with Rhino in the Element Well Studios guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder and fine music. Morning Rhino. Howdy howdy. One week away from the old midterms. The races are heating up across the fruited plain. I guess technically it's a little less than a week away. I guess the polls right. will have opened this time next week. Well Okay, if you want to get technical about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, have you seen how much dadgum money these folks are spending on this stuff? It is a bunch. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind when I see the enormous amount of dollars flowing into these elections is the government's too powerful. If you're willing to spend that much money for a seat in the U.S. Senate in particular, it's too powerful. It it shouldn't be that big a deal. That's the way it was intended. But we have, gosh, if we departed, deviated from that original vision. So, (laughs) a couple of examples. In Georgia, you know about that race, it features Democrat incumbent Raphael Warnock. I'm sorry, folks, he's a card-carrying communist. Just going to tell you. He, of course, is being challenged by Republican candidate Herschel Walker. (laughs) Raphael Warnock, $123 million for a Senate race. $123 $123 million. That is incredible. Mark Kelly, out in Arizona, the incumbent Democrat, $81 million. Val Demings down in Florida, she is opposing, uh, she's opposing uh, Marco Rubio on the Senate side, right? Well, that situation, let's see, she's got $81 million. No, 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 $74 million. Pardon me. Now, here's the thing. She's going to get shellacked. The polls indicate she's down significantly. But they're pumping $74 million into that deal. 
Which okay. means their internal polls are telling them they're close. I guess so. And, okay, so good good point there. You look at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, they have Walker up by like a point or less in the Senate race in Georgia. The New York Times has him down. Now, it's not unusual to see a gap in polls. That's why I think a lot of folks rely on the real clear politics. The average of a number of polls is maybe more meaningful. I've always thought Rasmussen and Trafalgar seem to hit the mark more than a lot of the polling organizations. But just some examples of the amount of money being pumped in in, in Ohio. Uh, Tim Ryan, $48 million. Chucky Schumer, $40 million. Mehmet Oz, 40 Fetterman, 57 Incredible. I, I just... Was it too long ago the idea that you'd see north of thirty million in a Senate single Senate race was kind of unheard of. And now in these swing states in particular, where they're close, these are all close races, generally speaking, it's just no limit to the amount of money that's being pumped in. Most of Warnock's money, who who leads the pack in terms of fundraising. It's from out of state. It's not Georgia people. Uh, it's because they feel like they got to keep that seat. And if you recall, that seat, which was decided a few months based on the way Georgia elections work, remember that was that was decided a few months after the presidential election, and we were all on edge because control of the Senate hung on the balance, and he ended up winning. Did Warnock, and so they're desperate to keep that seat, but they're working hard to flip a seat, that being in Pennsylvania. I think the Republicans have the best chance of flipping a seat in Nevada. Nevada. I'm optimistic that uh, Herschel Walker can pull it off. Concerned about Mehmet Oz keeping that particular seat in Republican hands. So, week out, lots of. Uh, Lots of dynamics at play. Most of the polls are now showing the House is going to the Republicans with perhaps anywhere from a 12-seat to a 25-seat advantage. Uh, Latest, for what it's worth, the Fox Power polls released this morning, they're showing a 19-seat advantage for Republicans when all said and done. So it will be interesting as the time draws nigh. In the meantime, Joe Biden is going to Florida. But, and I want to say Barack Obama is too, but not to stump for the Democrat candidate for governor, Charlie Crist, who also is now, I think, double digits now to Ron DeSantis. And of course, Val Demings, we just talked about, candidate for Senate, taking on incumbent Republican Marco Rubio. She's down as well. They're not going down there for that. They're going to Miami. The concern is traditionally reliable Democrat stronghold Miami-Dade looks to be falling into Republican hands. And if that happens, at least for a while, Florida is 
you'd have to take it out of the column of swing state. What and do, that's a part of a larger trend that the Democrat Party is seeing across the country is they're losing favorability with the Latino population. Yes, correct. And it's because they're... Well, it's another situation, though, Rhino, just as it is with respect to Democrats and all minorities. They pretend to know and understand and empathize with them. And by the way, if you're you're not on board, well, shame on you. It wasn't too long ago Joe Biden, right, told him, you ain't black unless you vote for me. How insulting. That's racist is what it is. Let's call it a spade a spade there. So they're going to Miami to try to salvage Miami. I don't think it's going to work. I really don't. So, and they're also, they're try, I think the last stop they're making Sunday is in Pennsylvania. Once again, up there stumping for that goofball Fetterman. Uh, and they're going to Arizona for Mark Kelly. So they brought out the big gun, the rock star on the Democrat side, Barack Obama. Will it work? I don't know. Hard to say. Hmm. Halloween last night, you have any trick-or-treaters? I did not. Okay, well. Which is a good thing, because I only had a small handful of candy to give out if they did show up. I forgot to go by the store. (laughs) It seems to me, uh, we don't have any in my neighborhood either, but but we don't... Honestly, don't have a lot of children in our neighborhood, but seems to me like, are, is it not a situation where parents are like taking their kids to other neighborhoods? Oh yeah, and they're gathering up or I mean, trunk or treating. Yeah, okay, well, that's fine. So you don't just go around to the neighbors. I mean, when I was a kid, you went around your neighborhood and you knew everybody. Right? Yeah, I mean, I didn't know everybody, but I went around my neighborhood. Yeah. So that has uh, that's changed somewhat. Both of my adult children who live in different neighborhoods in North Madison County, they had visitors. You know, pretty cool. There was tragically a mass shooting in Chicago last night. At this point, I don't think any deaths have been reported, but 14 children injured in just a random drive-by shooting on the west side of the city. Yet Kathy Hochul, candidate for governor in New York, dismisses the notion that Democrat states and cities are those that are most overrun with crime. She dismisses that. By the way, Daily Poll today shows Republican challenger Lee Zeldin with a slight advantage in that race. That would absolutely be the bombshell shot heard around the world should a Republican in this case, Lee Zeldin, Congressman Lee Zeldin, prevail in that race next Tuesday and become the governor of the great state of New York. Wow. News on Elon Musk as well. Is he going to move the Twitter headquarters? We got that and a whole lot more to talk about from the Element Wealth Studios at 1105 Mississippi Attorney General Lynn Fitch at 1205. Christina Dent, founder and president of End It For Good, going to talk about a recent op-ed she wrote about fatherlessness in Mississippi. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
Welcome back, everyone, to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. Once again, in the Element Well Studios, we are appreciative of you tuning in. Join the conversation at 601-879-4395. That would be the C Spire text line. On the C Spire text line, Thomas and Greenwood, that's a lot for one one-hundredth of one-third of a say in how things go. How has it worth that much? Well... Yeah, because I hear you. if you get to the Senate, then if you have higher aspirations, it's a much easier step up. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That's um, the value of a Senate seat. And, and of course, you know, just having that majority of one, Thomas, obviously you think about all the power uh, that that confers. The biggest, certainly during the Trump tenure, was Supreme Court justices. Gosh, look how it changed the... The makeup, the complexion, the attitude, the philosophy of that body. That's why they're going crazy about ending the filibuster so they can pack the court. John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, that's one of his top priorities. Joe Biden has been saying, just give me two more. Give me two more seats, meaning two to replace the two Democrat senators who are not in support of ending the filibuster, those being Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema of Arizona, he says, give me two more. We'll codify. My top priority is to make sure that you can kill babies. That's what he's saying. That, and of course, federalizing the voting system in this country, the elections process, making D.C. and Puerto Rico state thus guaranteeing permanent Senate control by the Democrats forever. Those are the priorities. Just think about how close we are to that. So on that, and that's where I say it's because the government's gotten too powerful. Stuff like that shouldn't be prioritized in the Senate, in the government. Think about it. Codifying the right to abort a baby up until the end of the third trimester, making that law. States, you can't you can't be involved. You can't decide on your own. We're dictating this at the federal level. That's that's top priority. And then the Voting Rights Act, styled as HR one, would completely federalize the elections process in this country. States You wouldn't even need that to be a function of the state secretary of state's offices anymore. It's all laid out and accommodated by federal law. Think about that. That's what they want to do. They're one vote away from that. It's disturbing. But again, that's gross overreach of power. And they know that. And they're okay with it. In fact... They believe that's their mission. They believe that's the mandate. I love what you always hear. It's a mandate from the American people. Anytime you hear that, just remember, you're talking about half, maybe. It's, it's not ubiquitous. It's not an overwhelming view. Um, so that's what they want to do. No question. And then massive tax increases. Massive. Hell, Liz Warren wants to nationalize the banks in this country. 
Think about how close we were to getting a self-avowed communist as the controller of the currency. They wanted to end commercial private banking institutions' service of managing your checking account. Nope, we want the federal government to manage your checking account, just your simple checking account. That's how close we are. That's how radical they are. And there may be some folks listening say, oh, no, that's not radical. Well, I guess if you support central planning socialism, it's not. Now, they're trying to spin the hell out of the current economic situation. They know that poll after poll shows that inflation, cost of living, the cost of gas, etc., top of mind for American voters. And they seek change because they want to address and solve this problem. But the chief propagandist for the Biden administration, one Karine Jean-Pierre, she has a different memory of uh, what happened when Joe took office. Take a listen. And yet still there's inflation. There's a fear of looming recession. Poll after poll shows show that voters trust, they say they trust Republicans more than Democrats uh, when it comes to the economy. What's the administration's response uh, to that persistent view among the electorate? So first, we have always said we understand what the American public is dealing with. We understand that there are high costs, and we understand that they're feeling very squeezed right now. Uh, The president always says this, and you hear him say this all the time, that he wants to make sure that we give Americans a little bit more breathing room, which is what his dad used to say when he grew up in Scranton and dealing with these kitchen uh, kitchen table issues. So when, when the president walked into this administration, uh, the economy was in ruins. It was in absolute ruins. It was in ruins. No, it wasn't. That's absolutely not true. And let's review exactly where we were when Joe Biden took over, when he says the economy was in ruins. Well... Inflation rate was 1.4%. Gas prices, $2.39. 30-year mortgage, 2.77%. Average rent per month, 1000 bucks. Grocery prices, 3.7%. Up. Elect- electricity and energy, up 1.5%. Inflation, sitting about 4%. That's where we were. Look at inflation now, 8.2%. Gas prices from two thirty nine to three seventy seven. Mortgage rate from two seventy seven to right around seven percent. Rent from a thousand bucks to almost fourteen hundred. Grocery prices up three point seven percent when he took office. Thirteen percent now. Electricity, energy sitting at around a one point five percent increase year over year. That would be on the last day under Trump. Now fifteen point five percent. Wages under Trump, up 4% net of inflation. Today under Biden, down 3%. So where's the ruins there? Ruins. And what's really amazing is, the only reason we even had any degree of economic downturn, because they shut everything down. Well, they call it bend the curve for two weeks. Flatten the curve. Flatten the curve. I know. Two weeks to flatten the curve. curve. How'd that work out? (laughs) We're only on day 977. Still under an emergency declaration. I don't know that we'll ever be out of it, because 
that does empower the chief executive of the country, just as it does at the state level. To and it's something that probably ought to be discussed. Honestly, it's like it it gives too much power because too easy to do it. Oh yeah, emergency! Now I'm in charge. Shut everything down. So she says we were in ruins. That's just it's not true. It's simply not true. We were ramping up rapidly. Folks were hiring people. Gas was still cheap. Mortgages were cheap. Cost of living still, in terms of its increase, still moderate, negligible. But they had to just do something. They can't just not do anything. we got to do something. We're central planners. Let's plan the economy. Yeah, here's a $1.9 trillion American rescue plan. Get it out there, quick. Oh, don't worry. No inflation. That'll be transitory. Be gone with you, you bug. That's what happened. And then a few months later, we need an infrastructure plan. Here's another $1.2 trillion. Fourteen Republicans signed off for that. And then... We gotta make chips in this country. Bring them back home. Here's five hundred billion of corporate welfare for that purpose. They won't tell you the truth on that. And now, yesterday, you guys know this. I'm composing myself for this discussion. You guys know that there's probably nothing that grinds my gears more than when the government inserts itself into the private sector and starts calling out by names. Private companies who were not breaking the law. It happened yesterday, and it's Joe Biden's desperate plan, desperate plan to bring down the price of gas purely for political purposes. And we'll discuss that when we come back on Middays. Don't forget Attorney General Lynn Fitch coming up at 11.05. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. In the Element Well Studios, little Stevie Wonder. Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. You know, it's another one of those days for the market where, as Major Charles Emerson Winchester said, it started out as such an enjoyable evening, Right? The futures were up, looking good, in the green. And then all of a sudden, bam! Jobs data, the JOLTS report, and uh, manufacturing data was released. And the market said, oh, uh, going for the exits. 
So what does all this mean? So the manufacturing data came in a little stronger than expected. So did the jobs data on the JOLTS report. And you would think, well, that's good news. Well, it is, except to the Fed, that means that inflation is likely not to be cooled, not likely to subside. The number of job openings rose unexpectedly, meaning employers are still looking to hire people. And it's crazy, but the Fed keeps raising rates because they want employers to shed jobs. The theory being, folks are out of work, they don't have as much money, demand is reduced, and thus inflation will come down. So when the market sees that employers are still looking for people, more than they expected, and manufacturers are still producing more than they expected to meet demand for their products, well then, that tells the market that, oh shoot, that Fed's likely not done with the interest rate hikes, and that has a negative impact on the market. That's exactly what's happening this morning. started out in the green, now it's down. The Dow now down 235. That's about a 500-point swing in a couple of hours from when the right before the market opened. Anyhow, that's what's happening there. Jeff on the ceasefire text line, I'm not saying this just because she's a Democrat. I just don't think Kathy Hochul is a smart woman at all. Jerry and Waynesboro, as far as the money to the Dems campaign, they're funneling it to, to Dominion for election help. Polls don't matter. We will see. I, I disagree with that. Jerry, if, I mean, if we just think that, hey, every single election is completely rigged and fraudulent, we might as well quit voting. I mean, don't spend all that money. It's in the, it's in the books. It's tanked. I'm not in that camp. I think you're going to be surprised, honestly. And look, here's what will happen. Wherever Republicans flip seats, the other side will claim the same thing. We're going to be in this in perpetuity. There will never be another president elected in our lifetimes where the losing side doesn't claim there's something irregular in the voting. Every single time. we got to get past that somehow. Not sure what the solution is. Rick and Goldport says senators, U.S. senators, have a great deal of power and almost no responsibility for anything they do. Powerful senators have routinely cowed. cowed. Okay, gotcha. Presidents with pending legislation. A six-year term is an underrated advantage in campaigning for re-election, too. Only county positions give more bang for the buck. And that's quadruple-A league by comparison. Rick at the beach at Gulfport. Yeah, there's some truth to that, but, you know, we're supposed to hold them accountable at the ballot box, Rick. That's the idea. That was the uh, uh, that was the vision. What happened? And it just always seems like you, you hear people say, well, not mine. Your senator's the one we got to get out of there. Mine's fine because they're bringing home the bacon for me, right? That's how we got $31 trillion in debt. I know I beat that horse to death. But yesterday, Joe Biden... Like I said earlier, goes to the nation to offer a plan to bring those gas prices down. It's a windfall profits tax, which I think the last time we had that was about 40 years ago. It didn't work out so well. It hasn't worked ever. And we may have some sound here, Rhino. The oil industry has not 
has not met its commitment to invest in America and support the American people. One by one, major oil companies have reported record profits, not just a fair return on for hard work. Every company is entitled to that, a fair return for the work they do or innovation they generate. It means, but I mean profits so high it's hard to believe. Now, the second quarter, the profits were really high, but the third quarter... <sighs> Shell announced that it made $9.5 billion in profits for the third quarter. $9.5 billion. That's almost twice as much as it made in the third quarter of last year. I think that's something. You think that's incredible? I thought, my, that's as good as high as it's going to get. Then along came Exxon. Exxon's profits for the third quarter were $18.7 billion. One quarter, $18.7 billion. Nearly triple what Exxon made last year. And the most in its 152-year history. It's never made that much profit. In the last six months, six of the largest oil companies have made more than $100 billion. $100 billion. And we had a little discussion about this, the three of us and others. $100 billion in profits in two, less than 200 days. That's not bad. And, and here's, why this, here's why this matters. I think it's outrageous what the, the, the size of the profit. Here's why it matters. If these companies were making average profits they've been making by refining oil over the last 20 years instead of the outrageous profits they're making today. And if they passed the rest on to the consumers, the price of gas would come down around an additional 50 cents. If they're investing their profits in historic, at historic rates in their U.S. operations, then America would be producing more oil today and prices would be down even further. But rather than increasing their investments in America or giving American consumers a break, their excess profits are going back to their shareholders and they're buying back their stocks so the executive pays are going to skyrocket. Now, give me a break. Enough is enough. Look, I'm a capitalist. You've heard me say this before. I have no problem with corporations turning a fair profit and getting a return on their investment in innovation. But this is remotely what's happening. Oil companies, record profits today, are not because they're doing something new or innovative. Their profits are a windfall of war. This just galls me. It absolutely galls me to no end. This is a person who has never signed the front of a check, has been a government leech his entire life. He has no idea of the concept of risk, reward, innovation, profit, loss. He couldn't run a lemonade stand. And he's got the nerve, the temerity, the hubris to criticize and condemn this industry? When did we get to the point in this country where profit is wicked? Does he not realize without the discovery of the use of God's abundant resource of oil and gas under our feet? We don't have the economy we have today. Not even close. So this is a guy who's now, since he's been elected, and even prior, during the campaign, pledged, I'm going to eliminate 
the fossil fuels industry. And now he's admonishing them for not producing more. He's made it clear. He wants them out of business. He just signed a law that extends massive amounts of tax credits to consumers to not use their product. And now he's scolding them? To use his words, give me a break. He still doesn't understand and never will and doesn't want to how the oil market works as a commodity. This is central planning garbage. For him to just make any comments about passing on to the consumer, that's not for you to say. That's not your right. That's not your authority. You want government setting the price of everything, price controls, wage controls, and then, oh, well, they're going to buy their stock back and their executives are going to get compensated for performance. Right, that's how it works. And by the way, while you're expressing your anger at Exxon for making $17 billion last quarter, what about Apple? They made 23. Now I got no problem with that. How much does it cost to run the government every day? Oh yeah, it's out of control. It's it's 5 trillion a year. Right? So it's just unbelievable that this guy has the gall, the nerve, the hubris to address this industry in that way. That just grinds my gears. Queen bumping us out here. We're coming back with another segment, and then Attorney General Lynn Fitch. Stay with us. Come on. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well Studios. Thank you so much for joining us. So, just talking about Joe Biden scolding the oil and gas industry yesterday. Uh, just think about that. So, suppose you're in the CEO of Exxon Shoes, and you got a government that's telling you, we're putting you out of business. We're putting you out of business. We're putting you out of business. We're going to give away all gazillions of dollars to the market, to consumers, to buy stuff so they don't use your product. We're not giving you the right to explore anymore through leases to produce more. And by the way, if you build that refinery, which would increase refining production, just just keep in mind that in a few years here, we're going to be all electric vehicles. That's where we're headed. That's what they want. I mean, California, right? It's already passed it. I mean, you could simplify it. You could say wherever you're working, all of a sudden your boss's boss gets fired. And they hire your boss's new boss. 
and they come in and say, we're trying to fire you as quickly as possible. <laughs> we just can't quite pull the trigger yet. Are you going to go out and buy that new car, or are you going to start saving? Right. Exactly right. So the reality is the oil and gas producers don't control the cost per barrel of the product they produce. It's, it's unique in that respect. It's a globally traded commodity. You want the price to come down, Joe? You want, and thus their profits to come down? Unleash the industry. Because all the smaller players will get involved, and they'll produce with fracking and all the other technology, and we'll have more supply, like we did under Trump when we enjoyed $2 gas. And by the way, the companies didn't make as much profit because the raw material involved in the production of what they sell to consumers was influenced by global supply and demand. This this notion that Amy's trying to spin this deal as well, they're they're taking advantage of a war situation. They still though that that doesn't figure into the fact that the product, the primary product in uh, raw material product component of what they produce is an, um, a finished good is controlled by the market. He just refuses to acknowledge that. Larry and Jackson says, how do you explain their massive profit? Well, Larry, how do you explain their massive losses in 2020? Think about that. How do you explain that? Well, it's real easy. Their profit is produced by revenues exceeding expenses by a certain level. Their revenues are up because the global price of oil is up. They haven't changed their model, their cost model, their pricing model. And again, it's a function of supply. And we have a president, a government, that simply does not subscribe to the idea of supply-side economics. And their policies are all geared, frankly, to, to impede supply. That's the deal. She whiz. It's, uh, it's really crazy. Gary the Berg says, if Walker doesn't win in Georgia, then it can't be said that Georgia is now a blue state. It can be said. It can be said. I mean, that's certain truth to that, Gary, but all the polls indicate that the governor, Brian Kemp, is up significantly now over Stacey Abrams. So I think it just comes down in a state where it's fairly evenly divided. I think it comes down to the personalities, you know, the people that are running. Uh, uh, let's see. When Trump was in office, we used to see either the Fed, X-Truck, or UPS about once a week, says Kyle. Disposable income. The first day he ended that by raising gas prices. It raised everything. It raised the price of gas to increase their profits. Seeing more and more reports out of the diesel uh, industry, or, or certainly industries that consume diesel and utilize diesel, there's more concerns going on there. But the biggest thing is people that use diesel in the production of their products are talking about the outrageous price. It really hasn't wavered that much. And they're saying, you know, we can absorb this for so long, we passed a little bit of it on, we can't pass on too much of it, then we lose all our business. That doesn't work. So they're trying to find the happy medium there. Just incredible. 
CC in Sanatobia says, many of my fellow conservatives are in denial about what the true agenda is for the left. Total government control, democratic government control. Tom Cotton is one of the few who knows just how real this thing is. It cost approximately $13.7 billion to run our country. Yeah, it depends yeah. on the day. Yeah, exactly. I got the same math there, Bob and Summit. I did it on the break. I got the same math. Thank you for that. Ben from Madison says, Biden doesn't have a business bone in his body. Complete hypocrite. It, it just It's one thing to receive criticism from others in business, in the industry, been there, done that. It's just quite another when it comes from a person who's just totally clueless, has no experience, has lived off the government, and honestly profited illegitimately off the industry. We're coming right back with Attorney General Lynn Fitch. Stay with us. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Middays, we are in the Element Well Studios, Super Talk Mississippi, Gerard and Rhino. Joining us now, the Attorney General for the state of Mississippi, Lynn Fitch. General, good to see you again. Thanks good, for coming in. Good morning. Great to be with you again. All right, so I know you and I have talked many times on the program about the efforts by the Attorney General's office to combat uh, this horrible human trafficking situation that I think is one of those things that's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And you really have to to dig and and have folks that are involved in it, such as you and the the attorney general's office, to come explain what's going on and why we should be concerned about this. Uh, this has been a top priority for you, I believe, since you were elected in the office. Give us an update. Absolutely, Gerard. And I, I appreciate Super Talk and our listeners who've been very engaged in this topic because our ultimate goal is to eradicate human trafficking sure. and to say to the traffickers, you're not welcome in the state of Mississippi. We take this seriously. These are victims, and we're here to help and support them. And you're absolutely right. In the last two years, you know, we started the human trafficking uh, unit within the AG's office. Great partnerships, um, public-private, with all of our law enforcement, local, federal. I mean, we've made great strides. Um, and, and I tell you, it's just it's encouraging to see um, everyone step up and understand and be looking for the signs wherever they these individuals might be, whether they're in school or you might see them you know, in a convenience store or whatever the case might be, and to call the hotline and give us these tips. And we've been working very diligently um, to help these victims because there's a lot of recovery once we get the victims and one of the things I want to share today I think that's been so reflective of the hearts of Mississippians where we see we can be supportive of these victims and they are truly victims because we have to stop and remember draw these individuals didn't ask to be in these human trafficking rings right and over 50% are trafficked by someone that they loved or someone that they trusted uh, and many times they're in 
these rings and they can't get out. And so for us to all go in and be supportive and find ways to um, uplift them, empower them, help them get back into society are so extremely important. Uh, so today's a big day for us. Back in 2020, um, the legislature established a uh, trafficking victim services uh, program, um, and it's a fund that's set up to provide funds for housing, um, for therapy, any other services services that these uh, human trafficking survivors might need. And, and how this fund is set up, it's to be funded through court assessments, um, donations, direct appropriations, um, and it's managed by the Attorney General's office comprised of a, a board, which is very important. Because these are appointees from the governor, the lieutenant governor, the speaker, DPS, CPS, and a services provider. And again, that is significant because you have all the individuals that are involved in victims and again in how we can provide services to them. So we've set up rules and regulations. Um, we've been educating um, across the state about this fund. We've, we've been training judges, talking to our clerks, um, and talking about the assessments and then how we get those monies started and in to this fund. It's, it's been slow, uh, unfortunately, but I will tell you then there was a great year this year. Um, the legislature appropriated $2.5 million to jumpstart this uh, distribution. Um, so we're excited. Today is the first day of the application period. Uh, we anticipate giving out the $2.5 million because, again, we want to be there. We want to help all these victims. We want them to be survivors, to get back into society. Sure. Um, so it's it's an exciting time. Um, we look forward to this application process that's starting today. You know, uh, General, with the border on fire, I think there's a common perception, a misconception, really, that human trafficking is something that occurs at the border, uh, that it's that's these cartels and, and so forth that are being paid uh, to bring people into the country, and they end up trafficking those individuals. But I guess what I've learned from you and also from Chief Dean Scott and mm-hmm. Pearl, uh, who's got a fair amount of experience dealing with this in, in his jurisdiction, is that often the victims are family members. And it and it's just heartbreaking when when to learn about that and and so it, it, in that respect we're certainly not exempt or invulnerable f- from this problem in Mississippi. Not at all, and and that's what's so unfortunate. Certainly, um, we are having some from the border come across, but the majority, like like you just said, are family members, someone that they trusted that trafficked them, yeah. someone very close to them, and so then they're compelled and they've got them in this. Uh, human trafficking ring and they just can't get out right. and you know and it, it's it is horrific the behavior um, many times they're trafficked for you know quick cash or drugs and then it's just this continuous cycle drawed and there's just no pulling back and then these young people are in it and then five years later they're still in it mm. um, and so it, it's on all of us and I'll tell you all of Mississippians have been great about seeing, talking, giving us information, notifying, uh, you know, a local uh, law enforcement agency, notifying us or the hotline. And it's been um, so productive for us to go in and, and help these individuals. Yeah. So you handed me these two little little flip booklets here uh, when you came in the studio. One is entitled Responding to a Domestic Violence Call. And this is a reference for law enforcement that was published in 2021. And then the other Responding to a Human Trafficking Report, published just a few months ago in June. Uh, first, these are really well done, very professional, and I like the format. It's just easy to get into useful information. 
but what was the catalyst for this, and, and how's this program gone? Well, it's gone exceptionally well. I'll tell you, you know, when we first started talking about this about two years ago, just as you said, you know, people didn't believe we had trafficking happening in our state, when in fact, unfortunately, we have it all across our state. But now we're all rising to the occasion and we're going in, we're doing these rescues. um, We're telling these traffickers not to come in. But this is just such a great tool, uh, primarily designed for law enforcement. So when they are in the process and they stop someone or they see someone, they can also help educate their communities about what does it look like? Um, How do we go in and respond? Because they're victims and it's very hard. You know, you you have to get that trust factor to, to get them to come with you and and so it's just very trying but it's very compassionate so this book is just as a great response it gives all the tools it sets out all the the laws uh, again what are the signs you look for um so we thought this is would be extremely helpful for our law enforcement so they would have this all you know categorized together yeah. um and, and the terminology you know, yeah. it's very different but it helps our law enforcement to understand you know what are the branding you know who are who are the uh what are the in call the out call what are they doing and many times it's primarily young women Um, we have rescued um, some young men as well but primarily we'll see that it's young women but this helps when you do stop someone you look for the coercion the fraud if you see somebody's controlling an individual Um, it's been very successful for our law enforcement to have this we've also uh, been working with our um, training our law enforcement so to date we've already trained over 250 of uh, law enforcement members and they're doing a fantastic job Um, that's what has been so successful is having uh, them come forward and this is just a, a tool for them yeah i mean there's there's some telltale signs that maybe not be recognizable without this sort of training uh where where uh your agency has done the research done the homework on this and and this is really driven by experience and um, um actual events and so educating them, giving them a bit of a heads up, they, it may be all around them, and they don't even know. Even the chief even said that, you know, when he's been on the program a couple of times. So I I can see where this would be uh, quite useful. Uh, I, I worry also, General, about our law enforcement officers uh, coming upon these situations, how that affects them mentally. It's got, it's got to when they see some of this, especially if it's uh, familiar um, exploitation. How do they deal with that, and and are we giving them the resources and the tools they need to uh, just for therapy when they encounter these situations. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's very hard on these law enforcement officers um, when they do find an individual. I mean, you're going in, you're doing a takedown. You know, this is a young person's life, and how do we get them to come forward to trust us to get them to the resources to some new shelter? Because again, now they're going out of their comfort zone. Yeah. And you got to remember, so many of them have been brainwashed. Um, they've been doing this now for such a long time, they don't know any other way of life. And you know, things got. I mean, uh, he does a great job, the whole um, law enforcement community. But you do see it, and it's very hard on these law enforcement officers to go in and see these situations, uh, see where these individuals are compromised, and and to see, like I said, the horrific things that these individuals have to go through and who they have to answer to. And then you have um, these, you know, pimps and just different that that are Mm. governing there 24-7. 
and you know, as we've been doing this together for the last couple of years, Gerard, it, like I said, it's been very successful. We've had, you know, 140 plus rescues of these victims. We've done over 33 operations wow. with our law enforcement partners and, uh, that speaks volumes. And then, you know, to be able to get them to some services and to some next steps is what it's all about, how we can help these individuals and we'll survivors. Come back. We'll come back and continue this discussion <laughs> and also get an update on the Dobbs case and uh, what you think we may need to work on in the legislature this coming session related to that. we got Attorney General Lynn Fitch in the Elmo Well Studios. We're coming right back. Three. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now, on to the real part. Dino Mike! On Super Talk Mississippi. Standing in the rain, with his head hung low, couldn't get a ticket, it was a sold out show. Jukebox hero by foreigner bumping us into this segment here on Middays. Attorney General Lynn Fitch in the Element Well studio. So your uh, your office has been conducting training, and I see that uh, to, for law enforcement primarily, right, uh, on human we- trafficking. And then I see that recently you were in DeSoto County doing this. But just reading through here, uh, something we got from your office, uh, General, training Mississippi bus uh, drivers, school bus drivers, to be able to recognize these situations. Uh, Department of Public Safety, beer distributors, trucking companies, truck drivers, so that they see it. Because they're obviously traversing the landscape of the state, and they're likely to encounter this and may not know right there uh, in their midst. Uh, But if they just had some understanding of what to look for, the so-called red flags, maybe they can report it. And you guys have given them a vehicle to do that, gas stations, truck stops, et cetera, billboards, truck wraps. So you're getting the word out, and we're trying to get folks educated so that they can be part of the solution and call attention to these horrific situations. Is that a successful plan that you guys are doing here? Absolutely. It's it just, uh, again, I am so thankful for all the partners who have been involved. It has been extremely successful. I think that we are getting that message out, Gerard. People understand. Um, we are getting the information. You know, and again, commercial drivers seeing individuals and calling us. Uh, the school bus drivers are huge because think about it. Sometimes they're the last person that sees this this child, yeah. this young person going in and to and from school and school many times is their only safe haven. But the drivers now pick them and they're required to, to take the training before they can you know, drive well, on the school buses. Yeah. Um, and just the more, I mean, knowledge is powerful. Sure. And as we can get that information out and people can do that, uh, people out working on the line in uh, utility companies, seeing, hearing, giving us information. Uh, we're about to launch off our second part of the initiative on Be the Solution. Um, we're working with the airports, again, PSAs, um, again, continuing to talk about it in as many arenas and circles that we can. Um, and then, again, even going so far as, again, I'm so excited that the legislature this year passed a bill that these traffic victims can now sue 
they're traffickers civilly. They can go after them because think about it. Many times these traffickers have a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, this is a ring for them. Yeah. There's money. There's drugs. Um, all that's happening. And so now at least they can have an option to go after their traffickers. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, a lot of dark money uh, involved in that. A lot of assets. Uh, it's, unbel- it's an industry, so to speak. And, uh, yeah, they should be taken down because they're committing horrific acts and they're breaking the law to boot. But you're right. It, it is a, it's a global industry, Gerard. It's a $150 billion a year industry, illegal industry across our globe. And, you know, you think about all the traffic victims, there are upwards of $40 million across the globe that are being trafficked as we speak right now. It's hard to comprehend it. It really is. Well, uh, certainly appreciate the uh, the efforts of uh, your office and the legislature for uh, making this a priority and uh, putting it in. That's what we want to do is put an end mm-hmm. to trafficking across the world, but start by doing that right here in the state of Mississippi. So that's great. Let, let's pivot a minute and talk about uh, the, the wake of the Dobbs case uh, Huge day, huge victory uh, for uh, your office and your efforts there, the state of Mississippi, essentially sending, uh, overturning Roe v. Wade and sending the issue of abortion back to the states. Now we got states busy working in different directions. Honestly, we got the deep blue states that are that are working to uh, uh, try to open up and increase access and availability uh, to abortion. We got many of the red controlled states that are doing just the the opposite. But let's talk about Mississippi. What do we need uh, in the wake of this? I know you've been uh, traveling the state speaking a lot about it. What do we need from the legislature? What what do we need in the way of uh, of law or policy here in the state uh, to, to deal with this situation? The the Mississippi Dobbs case, incredibly successful case for our state um, and moving forward. um, It was certainly a a rule of law case and to have the United States Supreme Court uh, rule in the favor of returning it to the people. Everyone should make that decision in each respective states. And you're right, George, to your point, every state is acting differently, responding differently, different laws as it should be. And that's why it was so important to return it to each respective state. Sure. And and with that comes, you know, a lot of responsibility. You know, we said in our brief this was about empowering women and promoting life. And we also said that we are ready for the job in each state in Mississippi. If you return it to us, we take those responsibilities very seriously and we will continue to move forward. So with that great success now comes things that we must do in the future. How do we do that? How do we uh, react? And here here are a few things that I think are so important for all of us to consider. Um, it's certainly a call of action. I think we need to have laws passed, rules and regulations uh, because next steps. So next steps are we, we have to have a safety it. Um, we certainly need to be there for these pregnancy centers. We need to be providing, you know, time and talents and dollars to support these uh, pregnancy centers. We have over 30 in the state of Mississippi. But then next steps, we need to look at how we need to have uh, affordable, accessible, quality child care. No question, we've got to address that. It's important as we move forward. You know, right now, it costs more to send an infant and a toddler to daycare for a year in the state of Mississippi than it does to send a student to one of our fine colleges and universities. That's just unacceptable. I mean, these young parents, they're trying to move forward and they're spending that much on daycare. And it's got to be accessible, but it's got to be quality. We've got to have the best uh, education for these young children because, again, we want them to continue 
continue to rise in their educational levels. We've got to talk about workplace flexibility, having options for these young parents. Uh, that goes hand in hand with child care. But again, it's significant because if we don't have that, we lose some of these young parents out of the workforce and we need them all to stay in. If you peel it back, you see that young mothers many times are who we lose out of the workforce. Mm-hmm. And then we've got to um, enforce child support. We've got to have people, fathers primarily, that owe, owe child support. They've got to pay. For far too long, mothers have borne that burden, uh, and it's not right uh, because those mothers never get to upskill. They can't move forward because they're not even receiving their child support. Now, the win-win is if the custodial parent pays their child support, then they're invested in the life of their child, which is exactly where you want them to be. The more that they're invested in their child's life, the better of a healthy environment for that child. And then, you know, lastly, just rounding out some of the big topics are adoption and foster care we've got to streamline that process it is so important to put these children in families that will love them and help them thrive and right now we're not making the connection and if you're not making the connection then you have a broken system and so we've got to change the dynamics very quickly on that as well i know lots of folks who have uh, uh are blessed and have adopted uh, and not a single one of them speaks very highly of the adoption process in our state. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's it's arduous, it's uh, it's time intensive, and it's expensive. And it, I, I think, if we could break through some of those regulations and and take down some of those barriers, maybe we would have more folks that would be able to adopt children in our state. But as it stands right now, it's pretty difficult and it's expensive. It is. It's it's an impediment to get to these children. And we've got to, again, we've got to streamline it. We've got to make sure all the steps are there and that it doesn't take that long to get these children. And they shouldn't be bounced around. Right. And um, it, it's just not healthy for them. And unfortunately, we have too many children right now that are in the custody of the state that don't even have a plan. Um, so it's just so sad for all of us. And again, we are such a loving, compassionate state. This is truly one we've got to address here very quickly. Yeah. So by custody of the state, what we're talking about is the Department of Human Services, essentially, correct, is uh, responsible for these children that are essentially in foster care. Sometimes they're uh, they're placed with foster parents. Sometimes they're not. And those workers are overwhelmed with these cases. There's no doubt about it. Having had two foster children 12, 13 years ago, saw it firsthand. It really is incredible. And I think if we could break through some of these obstacles to adoption, we could improve that situation. Oh, absolutely. And again, the ultimate goal is to get these children into these homes and to not have them sit around and wait and then they age out. And uh, we're doing a a disservice to these children who, as you said, could be in these um, homes just like yours and and could grow up and thrive. And so that's a goal, and it should be for all Mississippians to move forward in that for these children. Well, I hope that uh, we can work together to get something done from a legislative perspective in the coming session. I think it's time we we make uh, that issue a priority and we appreciate all the work and all the efforts by the attorney general's office thanks for coming on thank you always a pleasure great to be with you same here we've got uh, an interview just completed with uh, attorney general lynn fitch we thank you so much for joining us today we're coming right back in the element well studio stay with us
Started today, middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. Huey Luz and the news, the power of love. Jolly. That's like a hundred years old now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it seems like it was just yesterday. The DeLorean with the gullwing doors. Remember that? Oh, yeah. That yeah, was awesome. <laughs> Back to the future, of course. That's where the song was written for, what the song was written for. Still waiting for my hoverboard. <laughs> exactly. The best line and the best scene of all, though, that I still use every now and then is, Hello, McFly! <laughs> it was awesome. And you know those self-lacing shoes in the second one? Yeah. They actually made those. They did? They did. They cost about four grand, but they made them. <laughs> so you don't have to lace your own shoes up. You just put your feet in there and they zip. I like that. Very cool. I'd like to go up to Joe Biden and say, hello, Biden, <laughs> who's in there? So, yeah, we were before we brought on the Attorney General, Lynn Fitch, we appreciate uh, her coming in the studios and discussing the scourge of human trafficking in this state is horrific. I, I do, Rhino, worry about the law enforcement officers coming up uh, on these situations because you know some of those environments, they ain't pretty. And anything that involves, especially a child, I think just exponentially increases the way that affects a a person. And I I hope we're taking care of them as well, and and very much appreciate uh, them for entering these incredibly risky, thorny situations. They're especially, you know, Seems like a lot of times officers get banged up, shot up, sometimes lose their lives when they enter these domestic violence environments, right? Oh, yeah. That's one of the most dangerous calls that a law enforcement officer can go to. Gosh. And, you know, they know it's their job, and they understand the risk. They know it, and they're going. I mean, they're literally walking into the flames many times. So, gosh, appreciate their service. And I do think the adoption system in the state needs to be addressed. Uh, I think it's uh, past time to get that up the list of priorities and, and talk about. Larry and Jackson says, can we focus a little more on them not getting pregnant? I don't disagree with that. Uh, what do you mean exactly, though? I mean, that's that's the question. And, and who should focus on that? What should the message be? What should the government do? Those are all, I think, difficult questions. What should schools do? And, uh, you know, I think what is 
often missing, and this is something we've talked about quite a bit. We're going to discuss it even more when Christina Dent joins us at 12.05, founder and president of End It For Good, just the fatherlessness in our state, really in our country, is, is a huge problem. The, the dissolution of the traditional family, I think you could trace a great deal of our, our economic problems, our crime problems, drug problems, all of that. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's moral decay. It's a breakdown in society that I do think needs to be addressed. It's a difficult one. You know, how, how best to do so to have a meaningful impact? That's the question. Hmm. So Rusty said, by the way, we were talking about Joe Biden and his, I mean, just attack of the oil and gas industry. One thing you can count on, right, is that this guy yet has been willing to take responsibility for anything. Now, he's not responsible for a crime. He's not responsible for the border. He's not responsible for inflation. He's not responsible for the price of gas. He's not responsible for the wokeness that has invaded school boards, schools, private, the private sector, public sector, the agency complex. Nope, not responsible for any of that. Like Teflon, nothing sticks to him. So... Rusty says, funny, he never mentions how much tax they already pay, talking about the oil and gas industry, can be solved with a 10% flat tax with no deductions. So just to be clear, folks, the purpose of this tax is not to generate more revenue. The purpose of the tax is to force the oil and gas companies to lower their prices to the extent they can, uh, which would result in lower profits so that they wouldn't be subject to the windfall profits tax. And like Joe said, if they were charging commensurate as they were pre-pandemic, the price of gas would go down 50 cents, which, by the way, would still be a buck more than it was when he took office without a windfall profits tax. Never seems to want to mention that. As far as the 10% flat tax, Flat tax of what, exactly, Rusty? And I'm not trying to be flippant about it. I know I've been through this before on the program. There are thousands and thousands of pages of IRS codes that define the what, income. It's brutally complicated. I I remember in one of the transactions that I worked on in acquiring a company, how much money I paid to lawyers just to understand possible tax ramifications to both parties. It all had to do with Defining income, and you get into all kinds of crazy IRS code sections on this particular transaction was a little unusual. That's the problem. Defining that what? Don't You can't think of it as just, well, just my W-2 income. Well, that's just one little teeny tiny sliver of a fraction of a teeny tiny percent of what is income. I know that's what the average person deals with because... That is their income when they file their tax return. But when you get into the corporate world and you look at all the various sources of income, it's just ridiculously complicated, honestly. So that's that's why that's a, a tough deal. Uh, let's see. 
Uh, something else I would. Um, a shortage of diesel will almost affect uh, will most affect. Pardon me, the trucking industry and a significant shortage of everything. This is from Paul and Fulton. Just about everything we consume is transported in a truck. Uh, yeah, I think it's a huge driver right now of inflation. It's obviously the transportation cost. By the way, have you shipped anything lately when you get to the end of the or bought anything where you're absorbing the shipping charges? Like you ship an envelope overnight and it's like sixty bucks or something, right? Remember the old ten dollar overnight envelope that wasn't too long ago, and I may be exaggerating a little bit. No, I mean it's severe enough to where because I pay for Amazon Prime, I've started trying to figure out. All right, is it on Amazon? If it's not, I'm probably not going to buy it and ship it. I'll try to find it near me. Right. So you understand why Amazon loses money on all that? Right. You know, it's we talked about that last week when they announced earnings. They lost another near three billion dollars in the quarter on their e-commerce business. Because once you absorb all those shipping costs through their Prime program, which hasn't effectively changed, the only thing they've changed is to be a member of Prime, that went up like slightly, right? Yeah. Four bucks a year, I mean, something. There's a little more than that, but yeah, it's still reasonable. It's Considering you nominal. get the Prime service, you get the free shipping, you get other perks. Yeah. I mean, it, it won't pay for one shipment, <laughs> essentially, right. uh, of uh, the, the priority type shipping. That, that you're provided with Prime. Uh, but, yeah, there's no doubt. David and company says, if it, uh, David, excuse me, in Oxford says, if a company is set up to make X percent per dollar when the price rises, profit rises, and its policies have created the price increase. Yeah, it's pretty much right. It's exactly what's happening. The difference here is that you're right, David, in the oil and gas industry, that, again, the cost of the, of the raw material they produce being a barrel of oil is controlled uh, by the global commodities market. And I, I still say the best thing he could do, if he truly, truly cared about reining in inflation and cutting the cost of living for Americans, the best thing he could do is go in front of the nation today and say, we're taking the foot off the neck of the oil and gas industry. But he won't do it, because like we've said, climate change is an idol to the left. They literally idolize it, as do they racism. And coming up quickly is all this radical gender ideology stuff. Mo says, there has been a change to Prime. You used to get two-day shipping as a Prime member, no more. You still get some sort of... Improved shipping, though, do you not? I mean, I mean, it's free shipping, but yeah, you you have to pick certain items to get the two-day shipping. Okay, there you go. I'm still losing money. He just reported last week. Lost about $2.8 billion. It's just numbers don't work. It's just the economics don't work. And they're not... I know it sounds crazy. They're not actually in that business to make money. They're in that business to leverage all of the tools, the technologies, the systems that they're producing by being in that business for something else in the future that's just a twinkle in the eye. You won't even know them as an e-commerce company, I argue, in five to six years. We're coming right back. Rocky Raccoon, stay with us. You know what that means. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live on Super Talk Mississippi. 
by Yes. Bumping us into this segment here on Middays in the Element Well Studios. Super Talk, Mississippi. Scott and Gulfport on the C Spire text line says, I wish someone that got a C- in Economics 101 from Heinz Community College would explain to Joe that you can keep your margins the same and make a higher profit when the cost of whatever it is that you're selling increases. Well, I can assure you, a person at Heinz that made a C in Econ 101 is exponentially smarter about economics than is the president. There ain't no question about that. Uh, but I hear you, Scott, and, you know, it, it's all politically motivated, so clear. And unfortunately, a lot of Americans will celebrate a speech yesterday. Yeah, put it to them oil companies. See, here's the thing that I think needs to be kept in mind. You limit one, you limit all. You're just starting. Next is you and your company and your job and your pay. No doubt. There are no limits to how far these people want to go with respect to central planning and control of the economy. They want to tell you how much you're going to produce as a company what you're going to sell it for, what your profit is going to be, if they allow any whatsoever, how much you're going to be able to keep, not send to the government, keep, right? Because they're altruistic in that respect. Here's here's our generosity of you keeping some of what you rightfully earned. They want to tell you where you can work, who you can work for, how much you're going to make, And once again, how much you can keep. That's the goal. That is socialism. That is central planning. So this is the old slippery slope. This isn't just about the oil and gas industry. Honestly, what this is about is trying to show that he's got a plan to bring the price of gas down. Kind of like that COVID plan that he had. Remember that? We've got dark days ahead. That's what he was telling us. And remember that? I told oh, yeah. right before the election. Dark days are ahead. President Trump is reelected. Oh, gosh, the fear-mongering. And that's all this is. This is just trying to show that he's got a plan. I'm going to go after those oil and gas companies. So what's next? It's a long list of targets. Because they, of course, are arrogant enough and possess enough hubris to think that they are better suited than the market of buyers and sellers. Simple as that. It's um, it's disgusting, honestly. Start by limiting pro athletes' pay on the ceasefire tax line. Why do we want to do that? Why do we want to limit anything? That's, that's the point I'm trying to make. Limit one, limit all. I don't want to limit anything. That is totally counter to free market capitalism. Should be no limits. Should we also limit how many games sports teams can win? Should we limit how many A's students can make in the classroom? Well, that's the old equity crap right there. You want, that's what they want to do is apply that across the, the board in all facets of life. We're just all 
one big indiscernible blob with no unique individual characteristics. Nope, everybody's got to make the same grade. We are the Androgynous Anonymous. That's it. Let's just quit keeping score. If that wasn't the case, if, if that were the case historically in this country, we'd still be living in caves, honestly. Again, see incumbency. See, we're all good now. We got we got food in general. We got shelter and the, and the basic necessities of life down at the bottom of Maslow's famous hierarchy of needs. So let's start working around the edges to you know kind of equalize everything in the name of equity. Jeez. No term limits though. They don't want that on the ceasefire tax line. It's true. Craig from Moss Point, which should limit their terms and their wages. Well, if that's the case, let's limit his pay because he's not doing his job, Stanley and Lafayette says. Agree. Kevin and Monticello, what you saying? Uh, here we go. A perfect example is like me as a real estate broker. I charge 6%, 6% commission. If a house sold 10 years ago for 50000 I make three. The same house now at 80000 makes me 4800 But my 6% is the same. Yeah, it's a good It's a good. Uh, Analogy there. Appreciate that, Kevin, talking about the oil. So where was Joe when his stupid, the stupid shutdowns caused them to lose? Remember, Exxon lost $20 billion that year. Where was he then? I didn't hear any sympathy out of him then. Joe didn't mind oil company profits as long as they were writing a check to his son, Hunter. Oh, wait, that was in Ukraine. <laughs> Golly. Incredible. Wow. Well, I'm not going to stop on the rant on that because I think it really is critical to our future. Christina Dent, when we come back, founder and president of Enda for Good. Get ready. Get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone, to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. Rocking into hour three of the program. Joining us now in the Element Wealth Studios, Christina Dent, founder and president of End It For Good. Christina, good to see you. Thanks for coming on Middays. Thanks, Gerard. Always fun to be here. All right. So you have recently authored an article concerning the fatherless homes problem or fatherlessness in general in the state of Mississippi. What's on your mind there? Yeah, I think it's one of the things that we don't often think about related to incarceration particularly so our organization into for good works on how we approach drugs and addiction and so when we think about kind of those downstream um collateral consequences Mm -hmm. um you know that's something that i think we we're good at thinking about in other areas and i think we're not great often at thinking about it related to incarceration that whether or not we think a person should be incarcerated, there is very real collateral damage that's going to come from that in the family structure of that person. And and our communities will bear the weight of that, uh, whether we want to or not. 
All right, so I, I, I hear you, and I don't think there's any question that, that often uh, folks that are being incarcerated are leaving a void there uh, in the family structure. But how do you balance that with the need to incarcerate people, first to deter crime, and then secondly, often to uh, take them off the streets because they uh, potentially pose a risk? So are we talking about just nonviolent offenders here or, or violent or, or both? Yeah, so we would say let's just start with sort of low-hanging fruit of um, what if we talked about, you know, a drug possession charge or Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, Somebody struggling with an addiction who may need help, certainly, but for whom a a criminal justice time sitting in prison is not going to be the thing that helps them to recover from that addiction. So I saw this. It's it's, uh, I was thinking, you know, stats are kind of hard to get your mind around. Stories are a little easier. I saw this happen a couple of years ago. I was in um, court at a sentencing hearing, and I'd, when you go to court, you go and you see all the sentencing hearings happen at the same time because they come one right after the other. So you see other people that you don't know getting sentenced while you're there for whoever it is you're, you're there to be part of their hearing. Um, and I saw this this man came in, and he had, was facing this charge for a nonviolent uh, drug offense. He had had a clean record for 10 years. He did have a charge 10 years before that. Um, and his defense attorney said, you know, he was struggling with an addiction at the time. And that's what that charge was from. He said 10 years with no criminal justice involvement. Um, you know, this is just this is not something that he needs to be going to, to prison for. Um, and his the man's uh, fiance came and she spoke to the judge and she said, please, this he's a he's a wonderful person. Um, she was pregnant. Do the next week with their first child. She said, please let him come home. We need him at home. He is a good man. Um, and, you know, I'm sitting there watching that and, and thinking, wow, this, I can see this whole family structure is just right on the table here. What are we going to do? Um, and as, you know, she walks back to her seat and the judge hands down the sentence, 16 years in prison, um, for him. And the man is, um, crying and she is crying and, uh, I, I think that the weight of that watching that happen, it wasn't the only nonviolent drug charge, you know, before the judge that morning. And you see that in that's one court in one county, in one state, in one country. And you see, this is happening. It, it is um, very when you watch that happen, it's understandable why we have. Um, so many broken families related to incarceration, particularly in Mississippi, um, because we imprison more of our population than any other state in the country does. We, we now have the highest imprisonment rate. And I think you're right to say, well, aren't, don't some of those people need to be there because not everyone is safe to have out in the community? Absolutely. But can we rethink some of the things we're putting people in prison for and recognize we're not getting the kind of return on that that we want to be? And there's better things that we could do that would not have left this woman to raise a child by herself and a child without a father in the home for their entire childhood. Yeah. So uh, what's the solution? And, and this is this is interesting because I know this does come up a lot. You just you just uh, cited a statistic where we have the highest incarceration rate. Is that because of our our laws, our our justice system, or uh, our parole uh, policies and regulations, or is it because we just have a higher percentage of our population committing crime? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so we have, for a long time, just used the criminal justice system to s- try to solve lots of different problems. And I think one of the things that we hear from law enforcement officers who come to End It For Good events is the frustration of being asked to solve problems that their profession is not equipped to solve. Mm-hmm. So they are not mental health providers. They are not addiction treatment specialists. And yet we have said, go out there and try to solve this problem of addiction by arresting people. And they arrest the same people over and over again. And they're frustrated by that. The community's frustrated because it's not fixing the problem. And so we end up having this high incarceration rate. Um, and it's increasing. Uh, unfortunately, it was decreasing for a number of years. It is increasing again. Um, we have over 18,000 people in prison. 4,000 of those are nonviolent drug offenders. Um, so that's a, a cost to Mississippi taxpayers. It's a huge cost to Mississippi families and communities. As these, um, A lot of these people are parents. Um, if you look, you know, the, the Department of Justice says half of people in prison have minor children. Half of those parents, so a fourth of the people in prison, were living with their children prior to their incarceration, and a fourth of those people in prison were the primary source of financial support for their children before they went to prison. How do you square this, Christina, with law enforcement? Uh, you know, my in my experience, it seems like they just want to lock everybody up, that they feel like that, that folks, even for nonviolent drug offenses, getting them off the street, uh, they feel like is effective in preventing or deterring possible violent crime related to that. How, uh, they seem to want to lock everybody up, honestly. So how do you square that with them? What's yeah. your message? Yeah, I, I think the thing that I hear most is we want to solve the problem. Okay. And we have believed for a long time that solving the problem means locking lots of people up, okay. that this will deter everybody from doing the bad things. We know that that's not the case anymore. Sim- simply locking people up for longer and longer periods of time, particularly on something like substance use, which is not driven by a person's internal desire to like be rebellious or go and be uh, bad. It, you know, if somebody is wanting to numb the way that they feel, particularly if they're addicted, it's because there are painful things in their life, maybe trauma from their childhood or there's so many other things that are driving that that arrest isn't going to fix that. Um, and you see in other other countries, other places that they're addressing substance use in a way that actually matches what's causing it. So we've kind of focused on the drugs and we've criminalized everything around them and said this will solve the problem. Hmm. And it hasn't solved the problem. We've got highest overdose rates, high incarceration rates, high addiction rates. We, we still have all the problems plus a, a lot more problems. Um, and so if we can step back from that and say we're using the wrong tool for this, the criminal justice system and arrest is the right tool. If you go steal something, yes, that's the right tool. You have you've taken something from someone else, um, but it's not the right tool for everything. And I think law enforcement would be the first to say that's true, that they see that they are not the right tool for everything. And yet we have been asking them to be that tool for lots of things. Um, and so that's the message that they have uh, embraced. And I think it is our role as citizens to say we want um, a different result. And so we're going to use uh, some different tools for some of these issues. Yeah. And I know that's been talked about a lot. And, and even Commissioner Kane has come on and said, uh, y- you know, these, these drugs, yeah, they're just 
being incarcerated just because they, they possess drugs in a nonviolent way. We're not really helping them when we lock them up in prison. Yeah. They, they go out and they're still doing it. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it is um, – it's an interesting thing to think about. Okay, so somebody who's struggling with an addiction, they could uh, be pulled over by an officer, and they're in possession of you know some drug they're not supposed to be, and they're arrested at 10 o'clock in the morning. They could have walked into a treatment center at 10.15 in the morning, and they would be considered a patient with a complex health crisis who needs medical care. Okay. The exact same thing is happening. You have somebody who's addicted to a drug, but... You know, 15 minutes of time, depending on who gets to them first, is the difference between an extremely traumatic criminal justice involvement and a life being destroyed versus we recognize you're someone who might need help. How can we help you overcome this addiction and give you medical care? Um, that is a, a a problem I think we've got to face. This is the same person who needs the same things, and we have two radically different approaches. We got a break right here, but if you can hang around when we come back, we'll talk about uh, a recent report released by the state auditor concerning the cost of this incarceration. Well, really, the cost of fatherlessness is really what the report addressed. We'll talk about that and then have you share with you some ideas of how to address this problem. Sounds great. We got Christina Dent, founder and president of End It for Good in the Element Well Studios. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. Here's a comment for you, Christine, on the ceasefire text line. We'll get you to respond to. A man on probation just murdered a police officer in Greenville. Do the crime, expect to do the time. Too late to play the I have, I have a family card. You know anything about that? I don't, but I abs- I'm not uh, saying at all that that didn't happen. Absolutely, it happened. And it can happen, and yet that's not a reason to say then, you know, we sort of fling all the way to the other side of the pendulum and say, okay, well, we just lock everybody up because that's a way that we can guarantee that that never happens. There absolutely are those times where that happens, but that isn't a a, a one-size-fits-all then to say because this could happen, because it did happen, then we can't do probation. We can't do you know, those kinds of things. It, it, the cost on the other side is also very high. We have to live with with both of those costs and it is very challenging it's challenging to know it's challenging for judges to know what what do i do in this situation um i think it's a little bit easier to make that decision when you're talking about you know a drug possession charge where there hasn't been any uh, violent acts in the past and things like that yeah i think it it has to be an informed decision right yes uh, here and uh, in that particular case honestly i don't know the details rhino may more about, uh, may know more about this than i do but m- maybe the mistake here was that this person was potentially a risk of committing some sort of act of violence and should not have been granted probation right so but uh, so I think it's case by case basis. I think it, it has to be. If if someone 
um, has got a propensity to uh, engage in violence, and they've got a history of doing that, uh, even at a very small level, uh, th- that needs to be considered. But if all they've ever done uh, in the case, which is, I think, what Into for Good advocates for, and if I'm misspeaking, please let me know, if you've not committed any sort of act of violence and don't have any violence in your history on your resume, and all you've done in, in many cases, in the case of the uh, the situation that you wrote about in the op-ed, right? That was just a possession situation. Is that correct? His, yeah, I think his first possession, his first charge was, and then this one was a. We think he had something he was going to use to uh-huh. make into something, and you know. Okay, um, but uh, yeah, so that that's just seems to me like that that's got to be considered differently. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, uh, and that that makes total sense. I, I'm still intrigued by why we have this high rate of incarceration. Is are our laws just stricter, especially when it comes to uh, drug crimes, since we have such a high percentage of our incarcerated population in for drug crimes? Is it because our laws are stricter than other states? Is that what puts us at the top of the list? We do have strict laws, um, and it is. We also have a culture that um, embraces strict laws. Uh, a lot sure. of our sort of the the political rhetoric and what people want to hear is that. And so even when you have judges who are running nonpartisan, but that this is what they're hearing from people. You know, we. You know, if you um, don't give someone a harsh sentence, you might pay for that in your next election. So I think some of it comes back certainly on us as citizens for what are we communicating to our leaders, to our law enforcement, to our judges, to our prosecutors about what we want to see. Are we communicating that we want to see good outcomes, that we want to see less crime? Or are we communicating that we don't really, you know, that sort of secondary, we just want to see tough. And and we're not really kind of worried about that downstream impact or whether it's really having the impact that we want it to, whether that's on drug use, whether it's on violent crime. Um, I think you could make a case that you know if, if we want violent crime to be solved, that we are using lots of resources um, finding, arresting, prosecuting, and incarcerating people who are not involved in violent crime. They're involved in drug possession. Um, there are not unlimited resources. And so when we have, you know, statistics for years, it has been that less than 50% or hovering right around 50% of violent crime ever has an arrest made in it. Now, that's not because we don't have officers who are out there doing their best, but there is only so many resources to go around. And we have chosen to divert lots of those resources into policing drugs um, and we have lots of violent crime that is unsolved. And I think we could channel more of our resources towards that and and use the resources we have in addiction treatment to address people's drug use and addiction. Yeah, so on the ceasefire text line, most drug addicts aren't interested in being a parent. Your thoughts about that? Ah, uh, so I have, I have thoughts about that. Um, I have met so many since I started this work. I got interested in this work as a foster parent who was the foster mom of a child whose mom was an addict for many years. And I say that, um, term only to use the term that they're using in the text line. I, I don't prefer that term. I think it's, um, kind of holds people into a, an identity, but someone who's struggling with an addiction. And what I saw in her, what, what sparked this desire for me to, 
invite more people to rethink what we're doing is seeing in her that she absolutely loved her son. Mm -hmm. She absolutely wanted to be there for him. And she also absolutely was struggling with a drug addiction. And so from the outside, you see behavior that says, wait a second, she doesn't care. She's using drugs while she's pregnant. And yet the more that I got to know her, the more I saw, no, there is there is a war going on inside of her between this addiction that's really strong and also this desire to be there for her child that's really strong. So do some people not have an interest in parenting? Yes, that's true of everyone, not just people yeah, who are addicted to, to drugs. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's, right. There's lots of people who don't want to be there for their kids. Um, and yet there are also lots of people who do want to be there for their kids um, and desperately want to be free from that addiction or struggling through all sorts of experiences and feelings around that. And how could we help them better be able to be there for their kids, for the people who want to be? Um, isn't that the goal? Isn't the goal that we want more parents to be there raising their own children. We have, um, like you were talking about in um, the state auditor's report, they reported that about 250,000 Mississippi children have a parent um, or are living in a fatherless home. So that is a lot of children um, living in fatherless homes. And I think I, I, I want us to just begin thinking about the causes of that. Um, and it is devastatingly sad that that's happening. And so if we want more children in fathered homes, we have to be addressing the causes of that fatherlessness instead of just saying they shouldn't have done it. They should get, you know, whatever they they just should make better decisions. Okay, absolutely. People should make better decisions. But if our response to someone's decision actually makes it harder for them to be a father, I think that we can just say that we're not getting what we want from that. We're, we're not having healthier families and communities. Yeah, the last time I checked, we have the highest rate of fatherless homes in the country. Um, and, and we were either one or two uh, with respect to um, births out of wedlock as mm-hmm. well. So, mm-hmm. I mean, these these are cultural problems that really are are a burden on the entire state. Because it's really difficult to have positive outcomes when you have those situations. Talking about as a child is is raised. Yeah, uh, and those. they highlight too in that report the number of people, the number of men who are incarcerated who grew up likely in a fatherless home, and that's where I feel like for us to develop an imagination around seeing that cycle play out mm-hmm. of. We know that for children who have an incarcerated parent, they're more likely to become incarcerated themselves. We know outcomes are not as um, good for children who grow up in fatherless homes, no matter where their father is. There are all of these things play in together. They're all at sort of this domino effect that happens in the lives of many children. Makes and sense. we can we can stop some of those dominoes from falling by rethinking some of the reasons that fathers are being removed from their homes. Yeah. So, uh, well, so what, what do you want to see happen? I mean, I, I know you've been involved with this for a while. You've been a, a, a strong advocate uh, for reform here. What What do you want to see happen? I would love to see, um, first of all, for us to get curious about the reasons why. Why are so many children fatherless? Instead of just sort of um, saying, well, they shouldn't be, or, well, they're deadbeat dads, or whatever. Why? Let's get curious about that. Then start to think about what are some of the things that we might be proactively doing that are causing that, and can we look at other solutions for it? So drug possession. Is there a different solution for people using drugs 
that would work better than just putting people in jail. We we know that's not a deterrent for people. Um, for most people using drugs, states that have really strict drug laws don't have less drug use than other states do. So can we start treating drug use and addiction as a complex health crisis like it is? And stop treating it as a criminal justice matter that is increasing harm to lots of people, but especially to the children of people who are incarcerated because of that. You going to spend some time down at the Capitol this coming session to talk to members of the legislature about this? We are always trying to educate, trying to help people rethink, and absolutely, our leaders are top of that list. I'm sure we'll talk to you some more about uh, those efforts. Christina, yeah. thanks for coming on. Thanks, Gerard. Christina Dent, founder and president of End It For Good, has been our guest on Middays. we got half an hour left in the program. Got some news about uh, some towns in California, what they're doing with respect to gas stations. Stay with us. We're coming right back. Come on. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right. We are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Well, studios. So I'm watching this Senate race. I still think this one in Nevada has the best chance of being flipped by the Republicans. Adam Laxalt on the Republican side, Cortez Masto, the Democrat. It is presently polling at 47-47 today. And I think Barack Obama is headed to Nevada to campaign for the Democrats today. And right now, at this point in time, your favorite senator, Rhino, Bonnie Sanders. I'm watching him. Give me all your money. <laughs> Our future now. That's what the science says behind him. He is uh, trying to energize the Democrat base to get out and vote for Cortez Masto. So... This issue that uh, Christina was just in talking about, uh, it is a very controversial one, and that's putting it lightly. I get it. So some of the comments we received back on the ceasefire text line, in my opinion, no adult should be in prison for a nonviolent marijuana crime. I believe the majority of the state would agree with me, too. That from Ben from Madison. Just curious, Ben, what about other drugs besides marijuana. Just just curious. How do you feel about that? Joe in Gulfport says the addict has to have the desire to seek help. Until that happens, law enforcement is stuck with dealing with them. That 15-minute difference she talks about is dependent upon them wanting help. I think there's probably truth to that as well. It, it's, uh, again, very complicated matter. That lady speaks the truth on the ceasefire text line. I may have missed this earlier. I agree with doing something that breaks the habit or addictions, but how are those programs paid for? If it's by taxes, are we still not using resources from the people? Yeah, that's a good point as well. 
I think the question is, though, what are the what's the return, right? I think that's that's where the comparison would be made if the you've got the cost of rehab, and if that is funded by taxpayer money, does that produce a better outcome after the rehab than incarceration, which also consumes taxpayer money? I think that's where the comparisons would have to be made. Drug possession leads to drug addiction, leads to more crime, to pay for more drugs, and can lead to more children in the foster system. So what is the answer, says Mike in Gulfport. I hear you. Uh, and and just, just think about it. I wonder how many rhino of those who are incarcerated for nonviolent drug crimes, what percentage of the total people who are committing such nonviolent drug crimes are actually locked up? I bet it's a fraction, honestly, you know, of the total people that technically are breaking the law. You don't have enough resources to chase them down, to identify them. Yeah, I mean, you, you look at marijuana alone, that was, quote-unquote, decriminalized in the 70s in the Magnolia State to deal with resources right. and lack thereof. Right. I still believe that we're within five years we're going to see it decriminalized at the federal level. And it's on the ballot next week. I think Arkansas, the closest neighbor to us, they have a ballot measure, citizen-initiated, to decriminalize marijuana and uh, uh, allow it for recreational purposes. It's coming up. I think South Dakota as well. And there's two or three other states. I, the last I looked at that in Ballotpedia, um, it would put the number of states that have legalized recreational at 24. I think there's five on the ballot. They're all expected to pass. Presently, they're 19. Hmm. Terry's upholstery says, I'm sorry, I've heard enough of this garbage, turning the show off for the rest of the day. Sorry, it's my way of protesting here in the garbage. However, I agree with most of your show and your views. <laughs> well, I hear you, Terry, and I suspect you're not listening now. I, I would only say this. There are a lot of different and varying views on this matter. Like, there are a lot of thorny issues I think we need to have a dialogue and talk it out because anything that you have that's that controversial uh, where you've got that much differing viewpoints, I think you got to talk about. I think you can't just, uh, just sort of default to a position that says, well, this is an outlier and everybody agrees with me. And I'm not saying you're doing that here, Terry, and you're probably not listening, but I, I think that's part of the problem in our discourse in general. Sort of go to the corners and we, we again, um, sort of hold this view that my view is absolute gospel, and if you don't believe with me, well, you're just stupid, you're an idiot. And, and that's why we have such contention and have such a difficult time I think resolving our critical issues, and uh, so this is one of those. I don't know what the solution is. I freely admit that, and I, I have very mixed opinions in, in uh, on it. I, I don't want people on the streets that pose a risk, a threat to uh, to harm other people or, or to um, take their property. I don't want that. If, if they've got a history of doing that, they absolutely 
need to be incarcerated and take it off the street. We're seeing this happen right across America right now with all these smashing grabs and these revolving door situations in America's major cities. Law enforcement frustrated. They keep arresting these people. They just back on the street. Got private businesses saying, Uncle, we can't do anymore. We're shutting down. We're moving. You can't have a thriving economy. Without a thriving economy, you can't have a quality of life. It's just simple as that. So, yeah, it's it's a problem that I think we got to talk out, figure out how to address it. That's what I support. Let's get together and talk this out. Shared physical custody should be the norm in Mississippi for fathers who want to be involved and not an exception on the ceasefire text line. And the only ones that suffer are the child and the adults they want to give the child that want to give the child a good family. No no doubt that the collateral damage experienced where the child is is um, is the primary individual involved is um, is really scary. I totally agree. Um, and it, it's disturbing. Gosh, every child in this country, you're only a child once. And there's no doubt that your childhood, in general, it's the barometer. It's the, it's the predictor of what your adult life's going to be like. And I know, Rhino, we've talked about it so many times, but statistics just don't lie. And, and they've been collected and presented and mashed out so many dang times where we've learned, hey, children that come from this environment, they got less a chance of being successful in life. In this environment, they got a better chance of being successful in life. That's just proven. And until we recognize that and address that, come to grips with that, it's just going to continue. And that's off the subject a little bit, um, but that's what we ought to be shooting for. I'm just really commenting on my overarching concerns about the children involved in these situations. This is heartbreaking. Only one time that you get to do it. The Greenville officer was killed on October 11th and leaves a three-year-old child. Let's worry about the child. I, I, I think we just stated that. I, I hear you. I'm all for that. That's on the ceasefire text line. It's, it's terrible. And, again, if there was some mistake made, this person was on the street and committed this crime because they were on probation, then we ought to investigate what, what led to that. Now, this, let's put it this way, though, Rhino. You, you can't bat a thousand here. That's not an excuse. Don't get me wrong. And, and whenever this happens, I totally agree. There needs to be a deep dive analysis into, was this the right decision? Is there something we missed? Such that maybe this per- clearly this person shouldn't have been on probation, right? But at the time that decision was made, they didn't know they were going to go commit this crime. But were there other indicators? Were there other hints? Were there other red flags that should have been considered? Not sure, but to me, that's what ought to happen. We ought to review that. Now, we did get what I think is good news with the the bail parole situation, right? Originally going to be out on parole, having committed horrific crimes. But then the parole board flipped, pivoted, reversed. I think that was the right decision. I'm not sure what caused the original decision, and I hope they reviewed that so that Hopefully that doesn't happen again. Zach and Oxford, abstinence is the best way, but they won't teach that anymore. Yeah, I hear you, Zach. Um, I, and I, 
I'm not sure about that as well. Um, I, heck, I went to Catholic school back in the 70s, and this is crazy to probably to most people to hear this. A nun taught sex education to juniors in high school. She was dang good at it. It's not like they don't know about all this stuff, but that was taught, by the way. Um, but reality is, for as long as boys and girls have been around, they're going to engage. So I agree, we shouldn't condone it, we shouldn't sanction it, we should still teach abstinence, but we should also teach ways to avoid those situations as well. We're coming right back, final segment on this Tuesday, stay with it. You're listening to Middays with Gerard, here on Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well Studios. Middays. Don't forget. Middays and Sports Talk are going to be in downtown Starkville on Friday. We'll be talking everything Starkville in Mississippi's college town. I look forward to that on Thursday. I'm headed up to Oxford. I am uh, honored, uh, totally honored and privileged to be one of three keynote speakers to the Ole Miss School of Business um, family Business Symposium up at the Oxford Conference Center this coming Thursday. I, I will be speaking along with uh, head baseball coach Mike Bianco and legendary businessman Lee Lampton. I'm honored to be uh, among those and really looking forward to that. And then going to be turn around, come home Thursday from Oxford and head to Starkville Friday morning. So I'll see both towns. Uh, in 24 hours. I should also take a moment to wish a happy birthday to my lovely daughter. This is her birthday, November 1st, All Saints Day as well. And I just got a text. I, I got to report this, if you'll indulge me for a second. So my son and his wife have a boxer that had a, a, um, a concerning growth on uh, his leg. And it was removed last week, and while we're on the air, he just sent the results are negative, no cancer. So the, the vet was really worried about that. So we're, we're pleased to hear that news. I know they are as well. So his name's Boomer, Boomer the Boxer. So, wow. Um, anyhow, uh, I wanted to just, just get that out there. So this is a, this is a controversial subject. Uh, this incarceration matter and and uh, certainly that re, uh, related to drug crimes. I just think we got to get a bunch of smart people around the table. Like any of these controversial matters, I just think you need all the brain power you get that represent all the factions, all the stakeholders. It's got to be law enforcement. It's got to be criminal justice. It needs to be some clinicians involved, maybe psychiatrists. You know, I, I'm still in the camp Rhino where most of this is caused by this addiction problem. It's a short circuit uh, in the brain. That, um, And I know there are lots of smart people working on treatments for that. You're, I think you're aware of that as well. And, and some people, they're affected. Some people, it 
It um, manifests itself in drug addiction. Some, it's gambling. It's, you know, smoking. They're all just kind of all other things that become habit, I guess. And so, and not making excuses, that's not the point. I'm just saying that if we want to eliminate that problem, if you believe it's a problem, what's the best way to do that? That truly is the question that produces the best outcomes and odds for society. Um, I also got a, a text that said, you probably won't agree, but when this nation turned its back on God, morality went out the door. I don't know why I wouldn't agree with that, but I believe that you can't have one without the other. I mean, if you if you believe in God and believe in God's teachings, um, well, certainly let's talk about the Christian God, well, then you've got to, to believe in that living a life of morality is is a requirement. You can't, on the one hand, say, well, I believe in God, and I'm God-fearing, and I'm a godly person, but then commit immoral acts. Those are at odds. I should also point out, there are a whole lot of people that um, practice uh, in other religions. Rhino and I were talking about uh, the Sikhs as an example. I mean, I don't know that they um, that the Bible the Christian Bible. I don't know that that's core to their religion, but they are incredibly passive, good, moral people overall. I've worked with several. so Very charitable in giving of their time and energy. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, one of their key tenets is to keep a small knife or dagger on their person at all times for the protection of the innocent. Right. I mean, that's something I think people of all faiths could endeavor to emulate. Totally agree. I mean, aren't there others like Hindus? Aren't they pretty passive people overall? I mean, share in the same sort of kind of moral belief system? I mean, there are others, right? And so I don't know that we can just write off everybody in the world that doesn't necessarily see the way we do. I'm more concerned about Again, their morals than anything else, and if they if they believe in living a life of morality and they practice that, I mean, I I just don't think God turns his back on them. It's my daughter's birthday as well. She turns eighteen today. Congratulations, Dan in Hattiesburg. Michael in Brookhaven says I excelled in abstinence. <laughs> uh, marijuana and alcohol are both addictive ones. Legal ones not. Okay. Greg and Newton still seems to be, I can't tell, Greg, what you're saying here. You seem still seem to be unhappy about the flag change. Is that what is he saying there, Rhino? I got it. Every program from 6 to 6 spent days talking about how the flag needed to be changed on Super Talk. Forget about the people of Mississippi vote on the one we had. Mississippi let the NCAA dictate what happened because of money. Okay, Greg, that's your opinion. We don't share the same opinion. That's fine. But I appreciate you uh, letting us know. Thomas and Greenwood, I'm sorry I didn't get to all your texts talking about the big announcement from the governor, big economic development project. We will be all over that tomorrow. Stay safe. God bless. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.